You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. All right, this morning we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. If you're not familiar with your Bible, if you open it to the very middle, you'll likely reach the Psalms. If you go to the right, you'll eventually get to Isaiah. If you're pulling out your phone, it's because you're using the mark of the beast. That's all I'll say about that. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Isaiah chapter 9. This morning we're starting our Advent series, as Billy Ann was talking about, as Chris was talking about. I love this time of year. It's my favorite time of year. And I lo- it's, it's almost like God gets the final laugh because throughout the entire wor- world, people celebrate Christmas. And so it's, it's just fun and funny to see that. We hang lights up on the house, which are representative of Christ being the light of the world. We hang up trees in our living rooms and trees are made of wood. And ultimately Christ was lifted up on a cross paying the punishment for all of our sins to bring us into eternal life and a relationship with the Father. So many things in Christmas are constantly pointing to Christ. And so I love that worldwide people celebrate this holiday and and it's, yeah, pointing to the sun. So we're going to be looking at that this morning. We're going to be camping out in Isaiah 9, verse 6 for the next few weeks. And so I would encourage you guys to try and memorize this because this is where we're going to be at as a church family. We're going to be looking at the Messiah's names. And so Isaiah is telling what the Messiah is going to be like, but he's also telling us what his names are. And then we see here that he has four names. And so we're going to dive into that in just a minute. Main point today, what a wonderful counselor and friend we have in Jesus. So if you walk out remembering anything, what a wonderful counselor and friend we have in Jesus. There's an old hymn that's titled that, what a friend we have in Jesus. And so we're going to look at that today. And what we see in this passage in Isaiah throughout the next few weeks is we see, and I made mention this last week, we see the transcendence of God, meaning that God is over and above everything. But we also see the eminence of God, that he's here and with us, involved in everything. So it's not like he's just above, ruling over everything. I hate the phrase, the man upstairs, that he's separated. It's not like that. He is in charge of everything, but he's also lived amongst this earth. That's why I don't like when people say, I think it's intellectually lazy to say that all religions are the same. Can't be. Simply put, Islam and Christianity preach two different messages. Islam says that Allah can never leave his throne or else he would lose his full divinity. In Christianity, we see that Christ laid aside the throne for a moment to step into humanity to save and rescue. Two radically opposing views right there. And so we're going to look at that this morning. What I want you to get a grasp of this Christmas season, because maybe you're here and you're a Christian, you've been one for a while, is to get reacquainted with who Christ is. We want to look at his person. We want to look at his work. And maybe for some of you guys that are here investigating the claims of Christianity, we want to introduce you to who Jesus is. And you have to at least be willing to admit this. He's the most influential person in all of human history. He divided time in half. You can talk about Jesus in just about any setting, in any room, and people know who he is. You you can mention great philosophers of old. You can mention David Hume or uh, Immanuel Kant. People would be like, I don't really know that. You mentioned Jesus. Everywhere in the world, people have a framework for who this person is. Why? And I'd say, let's wrestle with that this Christmas season if you're here and you're investigating the claims of Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We get to celebrate this. You are a generous God who who, who gave the most gracious and generous gift. Father, you could have given 
stars and planets to prove your love. You could have given anything in this world because it all belongs to you. You gave your most precious gift, your son. Jesus, you showed your generosity. You too could have given everything because everything is yours. You laid aside your throne, entered creation, and gave your life as the greatest gift. Thank you. This morning, show us who you are. Show us how wonderful you are, how incredible you are, how miraculous you are. And show us that you are a counselor and a friend, one who's with us in our greatest time of need. We recognize Christmas season brings out so many different emotions for so many different people. We recognize that we have family members here in our church that have lost loved ones over these past few years and are grieving this season. We recognize there's people in this room that the holidays bring out a sense of loneliness. We also recognize there's new life and new birth in this room, and we celebrate that as well. Jesus, we thank you we serve a God who stepped into creation and knows everything about your creation, including the pain, the suffering, and the joys of this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Isaiah 9, we're going to start with verse 2 and read through verse 7 right now. When we get to verse 6, I'm going to ask you guys to read aloud with me. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All right, guys, here we go. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Big statement to make, but I believe what we need ultimately this Christmas season is for someone to deal with our greatest problem of sin. What we need is someone to deal with our greatest problems of fear, shame, and guilt. And and we see these at the beginning of our Bible, which I'll go to in, in a minute in Genesis. But let me give this. Fear. We can see our wrestle with fear. And what fear produces in us as humans is something that makes us want to reach out and grab a hold of something to make us feel safe and secure. So naturally, when we're fearful, we're looking for something to grab, to wrap our worlds around, to put us back into a place of safety and in control. That's what fear does. This Halloween, we were out trick-or-treating with our kids. Sorry if you think that's weird. We'll probably never be friends, but just kidding. But probably for real. So we were were out trick-or-treating, and we got to this one house, and they had a haunted house. Not a haunted house guy. My, one of my daughters was like, I want to go to the haunted house. And uh, I was like, are you sure? Because I don't think you're actually going to want to go to the haunted house. She's like, no, 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 I want to go through it. I'm like, okay, all right, let's go through it. And so we went in the haunted house. She lasted about 30 seconds. She was freaked out. And she instantly latched onto me. And if, if someone could physically climb up me, she was like climbing up me. Boom. I held on to her. Fear. 
in that moment, I also didn't know how to get out of there. And these people weren't willing to get out of their roles. And I'm like, okay, buddy, I need you to tell me how to get out of here. My kid's freaking out. And so in that moment, my daughter had a lot of fear. I say this, I saw the same thing. We, we finally got out of there and my wife is like, hey, I think I'd like to go to the haunted house. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, round two. We're in there for a few seconds, boom, she latches onto me. I was like, all right, same thing. Fear produces something in us that makes us go, I need to grab something to bring my world back to a place of safety. What about shame? Shame produces an emotion that looks a lot like this, where we hide and where we cover. So if fear is us grabbing hold of something to feel safe, shame makes us cover. We see this in our kids. We see this in people. We see this in ourselves. Again, I've shared stories. Sometimes there's, it's sin. Sometimes we just do stupid stuff that makes us feel stupid. Like maybe you heard the story once that I was really bragging with my friend about how awesome I was with chainsaws and cutting firewood and stuff like that. So I took him out. I'm like, I'll basically run this. I, I got this. And we, I sat and tried to cut one piece of wood for like two hours and never made it through it. And I'm like, man, this chainsaw sucks. It's like a really good chainsaw. So I took it to the chainsaw shop and the guy's like, well, I would start with putting the chain on the, the correct way. It was on backwards. And so at that moment, I felt like an idiot. And so my, <laughs> my friend goes, hey, man, did you ever find out what was wrong with the chainsaw? I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> never figured it out. Things busted. So, but in those moments, when we do stupid things, we want to hide. Because shame produces something in us that says, hide. Other emotion is guilt, which can seen through us whipping ourselves. Do something to say, I shouldn't have done this. I need to atone for this. I need to fix this. Like yesterday. Made an attempt to get all the lights up on my house and, and get all of our Christmas stuff done. I was like, it's, it's going to be a day. We're going to power through this. And what it led to is me having a lot of frustration and a lack, a, a lack of patience for my kids. I was just losing it. And my wife and I, we do this thing whenever we're losing it, is we start singing. We're like, I'm about to freak out. And we'll do that instead of screaming because we feel better about that. But it's a way that we still scream and we carry our voices through singing in, in these elevated ways. That was yesterday, most of the day, actually. And then when it was time for bedtime, I felt bad because of how either harsh I was with my kids, the lack of patience I had, or anything like that. And so the guilt kicks in, and I start thinking, what do I need to do to pay for that? Say, the Bible offers a worldview, the Christian worldview that speaks to fear, that speaks to shame, and speaks to guilt. If you go back to the beginning, so a worldview is this, in case you don't understand, it's something that you are standing on, it's something that you're putting your trust into. The Christian worldview could be summarized into four wor uh, words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you go back to the creation account, you see that God was the creator, he created everything good, but you see the fall. The Christian worldview speaks to what is wrong with the world, why is there suffering and why is there evil, and we would say that's sin. And when Adam and Eve fell, we see these things happen. They were fearful, so they hid from God. They felt shame, so they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then they felt guilt, and so they started blaming one another to atone for what they had done. And then the spiral happens in creation. And then what leaves us longing for is who is going to save us from our sin, from our fear, from our shame, and from our guilt? Is the Messiah going to come who's going to deal with this? And then that's what we see in the Old Testament, even as Billy Ann was talking about. There's this waiting, there's this hoping. Someone needs to come. Someone needs to put things right. We would call that redemption. But the Old Testament is giving us this promise of this Messiah to come. So let's look at this. Isaiah 9, 
Verse 6, we have this problem. And the way God deals with this problem, a child, a child is born. Let's understand what's going on in Isaiah. This is going to be helpful for you guys. Isaiah is a prophet. What did prophets do? They did two things. They were foretellers, which means that they were able to see what was coming, but they were also foretellers, which meant they were calling the people of God to repentance, telling them to turn back to the living God. So in Isaiah, you have the Israelites. They're divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is called the Israelites. There's 10 tribes. You have a southern kingdom, which is called the southern kingdom, and it's two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. What is going on is there's this army called the Assyrian army, and they're going through the world and just laying waste to everyone. God calls this prophet Isaiah. If you go back to chapter 6, we see this. Chapter 6 we have this prophet Isaiah and he enters into the throne room of God and we have this scene. And then God tells Isaiah, hey, who's gonna go for me? And Isaiah's like, I'll go. And then God gives him his job description, one that no pastor would take. He says, hey, all right, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna call people to repentance. No one's gonna repent. You're gonna call people to turn back to God. No one's gonna turn back to God. Everyone is gonna have a hardened heart. You will see no fruit from your ministry. Whoa. And then God is telling them, here's what's gonna happen. The Assyrian army under my control, is going to lay waste to you. They're, they're, they're going to cut you down. They're going to take you into captivity. You're going to be in exile. Look at Isaiah verse 6. Or Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is fell. The holy seed is its stump. And so what Isaiah is saying is the Assyrian army is, is on the march. They're going to lay waste you. They are going to cut you down like a tree, and the only thing that's going to remain is a stump. But that stump is a holy seed. That word seed in Hebrew is pronounced zerah. Okay? The holy seed is a stump. Now, if we go forward to Isaiah chapter 11, you don't have to turn there. We'll, we'll pull the, uh, the verse up for you. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump, so we learn more about the stump, of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there's the stump, there's a holy seed, and it's coming through this line of Jesse. We need to understand what that means. But Jesse was David's father. So let's journey back in our Bibles and see this. This is going to be helpful to have a backdrop of what's going on in Isaiah as we unpack what's here today. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, mankind has just fallen, rebelled against God. We would call that sin. When man says, thanks for telling me your way, I'm going to do my own thing. And then God pronounces a curse that is going to come over man, over mankind, and over creation. And when he speaks to the serpent, believe it's representative of Satan, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, that's who he's referring to, and between your offspring and her offspring. That word offspring is that same word for seed, zerah. The same Hebrew word is used back in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, what God is saying, I'm going to bring someone. I'm going to bring a person, a Messiah, through the offspring, through the seed, through the zerah. This, this person is going to come. When we fast forward in Genesis, we get to this man named Abraham. In 22, 17, and 18, it says this, God telling Abraham, I'm going to bless you. He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your Zerah, your offspring, 
as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your Zerah, your offspring, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay? The theology of offspring, of seed, Zerah is developing. Clear back in Genesis. But then we get to this kind of odd text in Genesis 49 where it says this. There's, this. there's this man named Judah, and he's the fourth son of a man named Jacob. Jacob is giving a blessing and is referring to Judah, but he's actually referring to Judah's line. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouches a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, that's an important word, keep that in your mind, can also be translated rod or reed. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the people. So we have this offspring, this Zelah. We have this seed, it's developing, but then we have this line, this scepter, which means rule or authority that's coming through the line of Judah. And if we fast forward in our Bible, we see this. This is God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your Zelah, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so the stump of Jesse, Jesse's David's father. So through the line of Judah, there's gonna be a scepter. Through this offspring, through Judah, God is raising up a Messiah. Jesus came through which line? The line of Judah. The line of Judah. That, that is what Matthew 1 unpacks to us when it gives us all those names. It's showing us where this offspring, where this Zelah, where this seed came from. It came from the line of Judah. And there's something fascinating. I think this is fascinating. I think our Bibles are mind-blowing to me ultimately because God is mind-blowing. And so instead of worshiping our Bibles, we worship the God of our Bibles because he's amazing. But in 1 Kings 14.21 and 1 Kings 15.2, it starts talking about mother's names. So if you ever read through 1 Kings, you're like, why would it start mentioning mother's names and grandmother's names? Look here, 1 Kings 14.21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. 1 Kings 15.2. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. The mothers here aren't from Israel. Remember the northern kingdom? The mothers mentioned here are from Judah. And they're the moms of the sons from Judah. Scripture is constantly trying to set us up to show us. Remember the offspring. Remember the line of Judah. Remember the scepter. Remember all those things. I'm telling you what the Messiah is going to be. I'm telling you what he's going to look like. Even though he came and people were still blinded, that he came to the line of Judah, that he was born in Bethlehem, that, that he was the great, 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 great grandson of David. Scripture was constantly pointing us to these things. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's another way of saying that he's going to be in rule and in control. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Four names that Christ is given, that, that, that the Messiah is given. So these are going to be the names. What does wonderful mean? 
What it actually means is incomprehensible. It means supernatural, it means divine, or it means miraculous. And so we know that the Messiah is going to be someone who our minds can't even comprehend. That's why Colossians tells us that Christ was preeminent. He was the firstborn. Everything came through and in Christ. That all wisdom and all knowledge in all the world is found in Christ. Christ is beyond our mind's ability to even grasp. He's eternal. He's everlasting. He's wonderful. In fact, look at his birth. Luke 1, 30-35. His whole, his whole existence here on this earth started miraculously. And the angel said to her, This is Gabriel speaking to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and in his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. His birth is supernatural. There's not been anyone else in all of human existence who had a supernatural birth like this. He was born in an incomprehensible way to our minds. Even Mary goes, how can this even be? And so he's wonderful, indescribable. In fact, when when Ephesians 3 talks about Jesus' love for those that are in Christ. Paul is praying and he says this. Please, please listen up. He says in his prayer that he prays that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the love of God. And then he goes on to say that is incomprehensible. So think about that. The love of Christ, for those of you that are in Christ Jesus, is something that your minds can't even get themselves wrapped around because it's infinite. He's wonderful, but he's also a counselor. What does that mean? Will a counselor mean someone who is an advisor or a strategic planner? Someone who is a teacher, but someone who is a friend. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, Jesus was wonderful, but he was also a teacher. He was a counselor. He was an advisor. He was a friend. But here's what he taught. You got to catch this, or, or else you will miss even the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts with this. Jesus shows up, and he gives a sermon. He says, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit. Blessed are those first that, ha- that know that they cannot possibly save themselves. That's how he starts off. Blessed are those who have no trust in their own morality and realize they cannot measure up. He goes on to teach throughout the Sermon on the Mount something incredible. What is it? He, he, he says this. He says, you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. <sighs> Crushing blow. What is he saying? This teacher is telling you that there's going to be no other salvation found in anyone else in any other way other than through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. His whole teaching was to set up and show you, this is the way life should be lived, but you can't do it. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in human flesh. I am doing what Israel failed to do, and I'm doing what you have failed to do. I'm living the life that God desires for us to live. And I'm telling you, I'm teaching a message that says, repent and believe in the gospel. I'm teaching you a message that says, you can't do it, which offends everyone because we want to be the heroes of our own story. 
Jesus taught a message that was foolish. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Isaiah was telling us what the Messiah was going to be like. Incomprehensible, wonderful, beyond our mind's ability to grasp, supernatural, uh, supernatural, divine, but he was also going to be an incredible teacher and a friend who was going to tell you the greatest message that you need to hear, you can't, but I have. When we get to the end of Jesus' life, we see something incredible. You, you have to see this. Matthew 27, 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So picture this. The one who created all the universe, the one who created all these men, the one who created saliva to break down food and all that was then going to be used to spit upon him. So this whole battalion stands before him, verse 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed, a scepter, in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, they took the reed, that scepter, and struck him on his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. What was Jesus doing here? Enduring shame. In this culture, this is unbelievably shameful. He is stripped, he is beaten, he is mocked, he is ridiculed so that we don't have to live covering our face like this anymore, bearing shame. Shame is nasty. It's a nasty booger. Anyone say amen? Man, I hope the Holy Spirit resurrects you guys at some point. So, shame is nasty. What? Amen. What Christ was doing was enduring shame. But what he was also doing is getting rid of fear. Because on the cross, once he was elevated and lifted there, Jesus cried out to the Father. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no fear in punishment. That's what 1 John tells us. Jesus was dealing with the punishment. Many people go to this world thinking that as soon as they screw up or mess up in one subtle way that God is just waiting to smoke them right there on the moment. Jesus, get rid, Jesus got rid of the fear of punishment by taking the punishment for us on the cross. That means when you stub your toe, it's not God going, boom, gotcha. It's probably you being a klutz because the punishment from God has been taken care of in Christ on the cross. He gets rid of that. But what he also does to get rid of our fear is he lets us know this. Remember fear, grabbing hold of something? Our security is not in how much we love God because, man, that is a fickle love. Let's be honest. Our security is how much God loves us infinitely in Christ. And it's God grabbing hold of us and holding us, not us holding him. That is our way we deal with fear. And our guilt, the punishment, the lashing, Jesus was judged guilty, <laughs> The gavel came down, the judge declared him unrighteous, unholy, guilty, sinner. He died 
the most gruesome death, one that was recognized as someone being cursed. Why? So that we could be declared in Christ innocent, righteous, holy, blameless, faultless, without sin for all eternity. And so that we never have to live life thinking that we have to atone for ourselves or somehow we're making ourselves more acceptable to God. You see, the Messiah came, and he came in a way to deal with our greatest need and give us what we ultimately needed. But the problem is, is the Jews believe what they needed is someone to come in and wipe out the Romans. But Jesus came as the ultimate Messiah to say, I'm here to save, but I'm here to give you the ultimate saving that you actually need. I'm going to deal with your sin, your fear, your shame, and your guilt. And that's what Christ did. But Christ is coming again, and it's going to look a lot different. Now you have the ability to say, yes, my Savior. When he comes again, he's coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 5.5 says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Our Bibles tell this amazing message from beginning to end of a Zerah, of an offspring of a seed, who comes through the lion of Judah, who's a scepter, who is born, who lives the life we can't, who died the death we deserved, who resurrected on our behalf, who, who ascended back to his rightful place as a throne, but who's also coming again one day. Let's read back through Isaiah as we come to a close here. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2. I'll unpack as we go. The, uh, again, the Assyrian army is on the march. Isaiah's like, this is going to happen to you. They're going to come in. They're going to cut you down. But then Isaiah is saying, just so you know, in the future, you're going to have hope. There's going to be hope. So the Israelites could read this and go, okay, good. We're going to be cut down. But in the future, there's going to be hope. And, and so this is what Isaiah is prophesying. He says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So we need to read this as comfort. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, maybe that's you right now feeling like you're in a spot of deep darkness. On them, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Look here at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Jesus bore a staff on his shoulder to deal with our oppressor that he breaks. Notice the subject here. God is doing all this, not us. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Remember the story of Midian in Judges? This, this guy named Gideon, he gets 32,000 men. God's like, no, nah, shrink it down, 300. And here's how the battle is going to be won with 300 men. You guys are going to break glass jars. You guys are going to blow the trumpets. And I'm going to throw this army into confusion. And you guys are going to win the battle. Bizarre. He tells us here because the way the Messiah is coming, the way that he's going to be victorious is going to be so much more bizarre. Through a cross, our king reigns. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's going to deal with the enemy and with the oppressor. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let me say this. I don't know what you're going through in this season. As I said when I was praying, the Christmas season is a time of loneliness for some people. It's a time of celebration for others. It's a time right now of chaos where maybe you're fearful, thinking, what do I need to grab hold of? And so you're grabbing everything in life to try to wrap your hands around it and get control. By God's grace, he will slowly pry your fingers away from those things to realign Christ to be at the center of your heart and life. Why? Because until Christ is at the center, something else is going to remain God in his place. Whether it be a relationship, whether it be a control, whether it be some sort of idol. And the most loving thing God can do on your behalf is to remove those things from your life and replace Christ at the center. Because nothing else can hold the full weight of, of, of the shelter and the safety and the security that you're looking for. The most loving thing God can do is replace and put Christ at the center of your life. I would challenge and encourage you to pray for God to do that this season. There, if there's something else there, for him to put that back. What God does in his salvation is he comes in and he replaces a heart of stone with a heart of clay, one that can be molded around Christ. My question for you guys, and even to talk about in your gospel communities or amongst one another is this. What are the things that you are fearful of, that you're grabbing a hold of, that are gonna suck the joy from your life? What are the things that you're hiding behind because of your shame? And what are the things you feel guilty over? And I'm, I'm saying Christ has dealt with all of them. Put your trust and faith in him. That's what Christianity calls you to do. Lay the full stake, the full weight of your confidence fully in him and what he has done and what he's accomplished, not an ounce or a drip in yourself. But then hear this. You don't get to choose what Jesus you want, okay? Talladega Nights was wrong. Ricky Bobby got this wrong. You don't get to pick the Jesus of your liking, eight pounds, four ounces, whatever it is. You either get him as Jesus king and Lord and Savior, or you get none. So if your hope is this, I like the Savior part of Jesus, don't want him to reign and rule, you've, de- you've created your own Jesus. He's coming in to say, I want it all. I want to save you, but I want to be at the center of your life because when I'm at the center, I know you're going to have the most joy. Where at? Everywhere, in your relationships, in your parenting, in your singleness, in all of life. But also in your greatest seasons of loneliness, pain, suffering, discomfort. Let me read the story from Richard Williams. Richard Williams, a young surgeon and Methodist lay preacher, an Anglican minister, and his friend, Alan Gardner, went as missionaries to Tierra del Fuego. In 1851, their ship was forced to winter in a cold, bitter bay, and the supply vessel never arrived for them. Everyone aboard their ship died of cold and starvation. True story. Even as they were suffering on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Williams wrote in his journal, Poor and weak, though we are, our abode is the very Bethel to our souls. And God we feel and know is here. Then on Wednesday, May 7th, he wrote, Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my loved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would never have changed my situation with any living man. Why? Richard Williams and Alan Gardner at the end of their life knew what it is to have a wonderful counselor and a wonderful friend present with them through every trial and every storm in life and to know that only him and he alone could satisfy their souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing word. Thank you for the offspring 
of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for fulfilling all the promises that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus, thank you for being the Messiah that we needed, not the Messiah that Israel wanted. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.